Well, good to be here again, as, as always. I'm thankful just to have this time to be able to open up God's Word together and seek to do the same thing every single Sunday, and that is to, to be able to love Him, to be able to know Him, to rejoice in Him, to learn about Him, the God of the Bible, the God of all creation, the God, the only true God who really is. Now, if you have a Bible... May I encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21 as we continue our sermon series through the book. Now if you're using one of those Black Pew Bibles, that's going to be on page 15, 1515. Now as you're finding your way there, let me remind us that the historical events in which we are reading in Genesis, and specifically as we've been looking at the the narrow focus of the life of Abraham, uh, we have come to the conclusion that walking with God can be very messy, can it? It can be very messy, not because God is messy, but because we're messy, right? We're messy. You know, we as people, since our very first parents, Adam and Eve, has been discussed uh, by Tim this morning, you know, we have followed suit, believing that we, we may know better than God at times. That we can do things that we've been told not to do, that it won't lead to life, but actually lead to the opposite of life, and that is death. But we, yet we still dibbled in it, right? Still try to maybe dip our toes and say, well, I wonder how this goes if I just maybe go outside here a little bit. And well, it hasn't been going very well. I think if we're honest about our lives, we would say that our lives ourselves are pretty messy and can have a lot of messy things a part of them. But here's the good news, church. God specializes in messy people because there is no other. Outside of Christ, every single one of us have just made a mess of things. But thanks be to God. Because through even the beginning chapters of the Bible, right, we've seen God willingly and thoughtfully and mercifully step into the mess of our lives. He didn't see us just mess up and go, oh, I guess I'll just see how this plays out. But rather, he's been repeatedly showcasing that he is a good God who steps into his creation even though we've rebelled against him showcasing how wonderful he is, showcasing that he is God, and despite our greatest efforts, we are not, while also providing and shaping history to bring about the ultimate promised Son, Jesus Christ. And although we're not going to look at the birth of Christ today, though I would remind us, Advent is coming up really fast. We are going to look at the birth of another son, the birth of Isaac, the birth of Isaac, the very son that we've been told will ultimately lead to that promised son of Jesus. So once again, we're going to see promises kept. We're going to see God step into the mess that we tend to make and see his sovereign hand continue his plan. His plan to bring about good news to people like you and I. And today, through Genesis 21, I want 
going to see that in three scenes, three scenes. But let me stop there for a moment. I want to pray one more time. I want to pray for you and that, that you would just receive God's word today and that you would be able to write with And I would ask that as I'm praying for you, would you guys pray for me? That I would be able to write, exposit it for us this morning. So let's pray together. Father, we want to come to you another time because we do know that we are in deep dependence on you for all things. And we want to admit that. And Lord, I specifically want to pray for everyone that is sitting in front of me today. God, whether they have come in knowing you, or maybe they're not sure if they know you or want to know you. God, I pray for every single person, even the littlest of hearts, that you would just illuminate them. Illuminate them to see you for rightly for who you are. To rightly be able to see themselves in contrast. And that we as a people would delight in your gospel as we leave here today. God, I also pray for our kiddos and the teachers next door as they are, as they are trying to, to teach those young minds or maybe simply comfort the, the ones that are having a hard morning. God, we want every single one of us to believe and to know that this is the day that you have made that you have given to us so that we could better know you and love you and rejoice in you. And we, we pray for all of that under your sovereign and mighty hand, Lord. And in your name, Jesus, we do pray. Amen. Amen. All right, Genesis chapter 1, chapter 21, rather. And I'm just going to go ahead and just read, as I normally do, through the whole chapter, and then we'll try to break it down together. But let me just read it for us. To start, starting in verse 1, it reads, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw a son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom... She had born to Abraham laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. 
When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel, the Lord, called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. At the time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to, he, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, The seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. Verse 32, So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Yes, we're thankful for God's word. Now, I know we just read through a lot of texts, and as much as I would like to, we're not going to be able to look in detail of every single one, but I do want to break up the chapter into three scenes that we see. Three scenes that I desire would teach all of us just the deep, compassionate God in whom we're gathered to worship. So let's just go in order of... Scene 1, scene 1, verses 1 through 7, where I believe that we see the goodness of God's word on display, the goodness of God's word. Because since the beginning of chapter 12 in Genesis, we've been following and considering the promises that were given by God to Abraham. Do you remember those promises? Promises that he would be the father of many nations, that, he would, that his nation would be great, That he would have a son. That his son would lead to the blessing of all of the world. But for over 25 years, no son had been born to Abraham and Sarah. They've been sojourning in a land. No land has been given to them yet. Sarah's womb had been closed. And so they've been waiting. They've been trusting 
Now, if you've been with us through our study, you'll know that the trusting has gone well at times, and it's been gone not well at times. One of the times it did not go well was when Abraham and Sarah made this, tried to kind of thwart or microwave the promise keeping of God into have a son with another woman, Hagar, where a little boy named Ishmael was born, as we see here in this text. But here in the opening verses of chapter 21, what do we have? We have the climactic event that the son that has been promised to Abraham and Sarah is here. He has been born. Right? They've been waiting for this. You know, for us it's only been a few weeks, but for them it's been 25 years. They've been waiting. Oh, what grace, right, to have God's promises be seen with your own eyes. But notice the repetition of the, of the verses that we have in 1 through 7. Who's supposed to get the glory here, right? Who is, who is told over and over again that he did something for this to happen? And I believe it's the repetition of really the whole book of Genesis. That we've been seeing that God's word is good. His God's word is good. That God does not make empty promises. He's not a wishful thinker. Thinker. He's not like you or I, right? Where we tend to make promises or say that we're going to do something, and sometimes we don't do it. God is not like us, church. That's a really good thing. Remember, Genesis 1, right? From the very onset of the Bible, Genesis 1, we've been... The author Moses has been trying to teach us that when God says he's going to do something, it happens. Remember the first word spoken by God in Genesis that's recorded? God said, let there be light. And there was light, right? The reality is that God's words always come true. And so here, when we consider the birth of Isaac, right, Moses is wanting to highlight that the birth of Isaac is a reminder of the goodness of God's word. It wasn't because just the right circumstances happened to line up that day. Or that even Sarah somehow got things right or she fixed her faith and somehow she earned this. Or Abraham fixed his faith and somehow earned this. But rather, God in his own time, meaning decided to give the son. Let me point out a few of these, these spots where it says, the Lord did as he had promised. Or Sarah gave birth at the time of which God had spoken to him. See, church, I pray that we would embrace this reality this morning. The reality that the one true God, right, the one true God of the Bible is not a God of happenstance, right? He's not a God who just hopes things will work out, but rather a God who's always working things according to his perfect will. A God that does not make mistakes, both in his actions and also his timing. And I think that's something that we need to remember and think about this morning, that God does not make mistakes when it comes to what he does or even when he does it. Because it's usually one or the other that we struggle with, if not both. But what we're seeing here in Genesis 21 is that we can trust his timing, that it's always perfect. 
I believe the author even highlights and comments this by pointing out the age of Abraham a couple of times, three times actually, in verses 2, 5, and 7. We, we see that he was old age. He was 100 years old. Notice that Moses never points out the age of Sarah. Because Moses was a smart man, right? <laughs> but yet Sarah... And, and I love this. Sarah loved to point out the age of Abraham. Like, I bore him a son in his old age. You know, I'm eight months roughly older than my wife, and she loves to point out that I'm the old man in the family. And I'm sure every time someone came over to visit Isaac, right, the promised son, Sarah would point out, I did this when Abraham was 100 years old. Right? Always trying to highlight how old Abraham was. But what's the point of all that, right? What's the point of highlighting the age or highlighting these circumstances? Well, I believe what God is doing is he's pointing out that he does what most people write off will never happen. You know, myself, if you're like me, sometimes we'll make excuses. We'll say, you know, too much time has passed by. Or too much sin has occurred. Or don't you know the circumstances that now I find myself in? How could you possibly be, make good on your promises? Well, God doesn't struggle with that. He doesn't look at that the way that I look at that. Circumstances do not play a role into his goodness. It's part of who he is. And so here we're reminded of the goodness of God's word over and over again. But notice the irony. If you look at verse 7, notice the irony of even what Sarah says. When she says, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Well, God's been saying that for 25 years. And before I move on to scene 2 with Ishmael and Hagar... What I want to point out is, with the birth of Isaac, it's not just that God has given them a son, but we have to remember the barrenness of Sarah's womb, right? Over and over again, we're told that Sarah's womb was bare. It's one of the first things we actually learned about Sarah back in Genesis 11. And here's why we have to consider that with just a miracle, and which is the birth of Isaac. Because in Jewish thought... To have a barren womb was often compared to a tomb itself. That there was no life in the tomb, but it was, it had nothing. It was an empty tomb, is how even one of the Proverbs put it, comparing a barren womb to an empty tomb. So what do we see? What are we beginning then to see with the birth of Isaac? We're seeing that God is, he's trying to declare that I am able to bring life out of the tomb. Right? It's a glimpse into the resurrection in some ways. Right? Where we're beginning to see that God calls into what only is reserved for death and says, I'm going to bring life out of it. That's what the birth of Isaac was. It was God bringing life out of death. Reminding us of just what kind of God we worship. 
Because it's also a reminder of how every single one of our relationships with God began. It began with God taking something that was dead, ourselves, that we were dead in our sins, and calling us to himself. Walking out of the tomb, so to speak, to follow Christ. It's why Jesus would describe coming to faith in John 3 as like being born again. Like being born again. See, God is always showcasing. He takes what is dead. He takes what no man could ever fix and says, but I can. I can do something about that. I can take what is dead or empty or tomb-like and bring life out of it. That is really good news for us, church. Really good news for us. And if you're not a Christian this morning, or maybe you're just not quite sure where you're at, that's okay. You're welcome here for as long as you want. But you need to know that one of the reasons why God is drawing you here, whether you think he's drawing you or not, he's drawing you here is because he wants to speak life into you. Just like all of us, he's speaking life, where all of a sudden you become alive to the word of God. You believe that when Jesus went to the cross that he wasn't just doing that for other people. But that was something that you needed in that moment. He's saying, are you going to stop trying to be God of your life? Because you know how that's working out. You know the mess that it is. But here I am calling you out of that mess into myself. And I trust, I trust that, that God will continue to do the work that he is doing in your own soul. And allowing you to see the marvelous God in which the scriptures teach us. That's why you're here today. It's not for the free coffee. I can assure you of that. There's good coffee elsewhere. We're getting better. But that's not why you're here. All right, let's move on to scene two. Scene two, verses eight through 21. Here we see the grandness of God's thoughts. The grandness of God's thoughts. Because quickly, right after that momentous birth of Isaac, we're brought back into the reality of sin and brokenness, aren't we? It doesn't take long. Where when Isaac is probably two to three years old, we're told that there was this giant feast that is given. Right? Isaac has been weaned. And at this time is when they would celebrate. They would celebrate the child. But notice that there's not really a whole lot of attention given to Isaac in this passage. Though we've been talking about this child for chapters and chapters and chapters, Moses doesn't spend a lot of time on it. Rather, even this party, this festival that there happened, it, it becomes one of those, those parties, families, where all of a sudden family strife breaks out. And quickly, the party doesn't seem very fun anymore. I don't know if you've ever been a part of one of those. Things are going well. Family arguments break out. It's not so much fun anymore. And so what's happening? Right? What's happening? Well, look at verse 9. It says, But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing, laughing. Now, laughing plays a key role in this chapter. The word laughing plays a key role. 
right? Isaac's very name is, means he laughs. It's the same word. So laughing has been this reminder that God has given Sarah and Abraham and Isaac that even though they laughed sinfully before, God has provided for them so that every time they look at Isaac, they're reminded of the good laughter that he has brought into their life, the laughter of provision, the laughter of this promised son. But yeah, we're also seeing here that Ishmael laughs at Isaac. Now, we're not really told exactly what the circumstances are. But I think from the context, we can see that it was not a good laughter. You may even have a footnote in your Bible that says it was a a mocking laughter. Paul, over in the New Testament, he actually describes this as Ishmael was persecuting Isaac in this moment. So what does Sarah do? Clearly, it's bad, because Sarah immediately tells Abraham that she wants Hagar and Ishmael out of the house. She wants them gone forever. And Abraham is disappointed, isn't he? But I believe there's more going on than what we can just see in the narrative. And I believe that because we, we see in verse 12, God actually enters into the picture here and speaks to Abraham and tells him to listen to Sarah's request. That this is something that is a part of the plan of God. And although it may not make sense to you in this moment, you will have to trust me. I don't know if you've ever been there. Sometimes when God calls you to do something, it may not make a whole lot of sense. It may even seem like it's going to bring a great pain to you. But yet, it's what God has told you to do. And Abraham, he responds to God well, doesn't he here? He trusts God. He he does what is asked of him. He still tries to be a good dad, right? He sends Hagar and Ishmael out in verse 16 through 21 with some resources. And what we see is God in verses 16 through 21, really give Hagar and Ishmael common grace. Common grace. That even on the verge of death, right, dehydration from what we now see as they were heading back to Egypt, is that God provides for them. Even though there's nothing indicating that neither Hagar or Ishmael were actually praying and asking God for provision. Notice that when Hagar was crying out, God heard the voice, heard the groanings of Ishmael, not her. Because maybe Hagar was not even praying to him. But yet God still provides for them. Provides for Ishmael. And we're told a little bit about his future. But let me ask us a question. Why did Sarah act so harshly? Right? Why did she take such extreme measures to banish out Hagar and Ishmael from the family right here in this moment? And why did God seemingly validate this, saying, this is part of what I am doing? Well, ultimately, we don't know specifically. We don't know specifically. Maybe it was to protect the life of Isaac. Maybe there was going to be a situation like a Cain and Abel where the older kills the younger. We don't know. But we do know from the rest of the Bible that there was 
a spiritual lesson that was taking place here. That God was going to use this moment to teach Christians in the New Testament about what it means to belong to the family of God. And this is where I want to show us that even amidst this, we see the grandness of God's thoughts. Even though we don't see this immediately in the text, God was using this for his very specific purposes. Because later on in the New Testament, when the Jewish people were trying to understand, has God's promises, have they failed to us? Has God failed his people? Paul in Romans actually quotes out of here, Genesis 21. Let me show you this. This is from Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 9. Where Paul highlights this a text here in Genesis 21 where he says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But, and here's a quote from Genesis 21, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as his offspring. For this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. You see, church, Paul is using Genesis 21 in Romans 9 to teach you and I that God always keeps his promises to his people. That there are children of the flesh and there's also children of the promise. So even though we have this interesting family squabble in Genesis 21, it's pointing to this reality of what does it mean to belong to him? Does it mean just to have the right genetic structure, to have the right DNA, to be risen or raised in the right house? Paul's saying, no, that doesn't matter. Ultimately, it matters what you do with the son. Are you part of the promised son? Do you know the promised keeper? And that's really the beauty of the gospel church. That it's not about our family heritage. It's about God and his promises. It's about belonging to the promised keeper. And the scriptures tells us that when we believe in Jesus, right, when we trust in him, we are actually adopted into his family. That we now belong to the promise because we belong to Christ. It's one of the greatest realities of the gospel church. Is that God can take whatever family you grew up in, whatever your background is, and say, but now you can belong to me and to my family and my promises. And we can be counted as his offspring, not based on what we have done, but based on of what, what God has done through his life, death, and resurrection. Now, scene three. So we've seen the goodness of God's word. We've seen just the, the wonderful complexity of God's thoughts, the, the grandness of his thoughts. And now we're seeing here in scene three the reminder of the glory that is to come. Now, I don't have time to walk through all the details of this next scene of Abraham having this conversation and providing this covenant with Abimelech and, and the commander of the Philistines. 
But what I do want to point out is, even amidst this, we're seeing the same theme from the opening of the chapter all the way through. And that is this deep trust in the promises of God. Because not only is the promises of God often threatened with the Son, but remember, what are some of the other promises that God has made to Abraham? A promise of land. Land. And that's what we're seeing kind of threatened here. Threatened here with this this conversation with Abraham. Remember, Abraham is still a sojourner. The land has not been given to him. He's still living amongst pagan kings and civilizations. And so arises this issue over this well. Right? Water was a big thing in an arid landscape like it is now. And Abimelech and Abraham make a covenant. Right? Abimelech's been able to see the work of God through Abraham. And so he decides that I need to partner with him. And so they make this covenant. Though I am reminded through the words of Abimelech here that it seems like Abimelech has the same line over and over again. I didn't, I didn't know what was going on, right? We saw that last week in Genesis 20. Here again, he's like, I didn't know what was going on. Yeah, you did. You did. But yet, common grace was still a part of this. But what we're seeing is the sun, and we're also seeing the land. But why, why would Moses put this, right, this interaction right on the heels of the birth of Isaac or the casting off of Ishmael? It seems like it's a hard stop, right? You see this, these wonderful things happen. You see this tension between the family, and all of a sudden you see Abimelech and Abraham arguing about a well. What, why add this? Why was this important for the original audience in us today to really know and look at? I spent a lot of time asking myself that question this week. Why is this in the Bible? Why is this in the Bible? Well, I think... I think it was pointing to that even when we see the first fruits of fulfillment of God's promises, we are reminded that God is still at work. That even though the first fulfillments, like the promised son is here, there is still this deep dependency on God that must take place. They are still needing for God to finish what he started, ultimately. That they were longing to see the accomplished promises in full. Really, I think what this last scene is pointing that something greater is still to come. Something greater is still to come. A time when maybe the promised son would no longer be in jeopardy. Even outside of the womb. Maybe a time Abraham was looking forward to a land that would not be threatened. Maybe a time when there would be no longer squabble over land or water. Maybe Abraham planting a tree and talking about the everlasting God was Abraham looking forward to a time where there would be a perfect land with another tree where their everlasting God would always be present. Maybe he was looking forward to something far greater than even this moment. Maybe that land, right, that dwelling place of God forever with the tree of life that we are still longing for as a people. 
Because church, this longing, right, for God to make things right, like Tim talked about, for all of creation to be renewed, we're still waiting for that. But God has promised it. And God always makes good on his promises, doesn't he? So even though we are waiting, we can consider the birth of Isaac as a reminder, God answers his promises. We can see the birth of Jesus himself as a reminder of God keeps his promises. But what about the land? What about the dwelling place of of humanity and God forever? We're still waiting, and this is what Abraham was doing in this moment. I believe. And let me show you this. This is from the book of Hebrews that often is commenting back on Genesis when the author is pointing out something that Abraham and Sarah longed for. Let me read this to us. These all died in faith, speaking of Abraham and Sarah, not having received the things promised, talking about the land, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. For if they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared for them a city. So even amongst worldly tension, even amongst great provision by God bringing Isaac, here in Genesis 21, we're still seeing that God has not accomplished everything. There is still more to come for his people. And Abraham knew that God was still at work. He knew that there was still more to come. He knew that even that covenant with Abimelech was not the end all. Because why did he plant a tree? Why would he do that? Knowing that he probably would never see the fruit of it. But he was planting a tree. Not because that tree would be everlasting, but because he knew the word of God was. And so the tree was representative of him clinging to the promises of God here. Promises that if you do flip to the last book of your Bible you will see promises ultimately kept. And we long to see them. We see them like Abraham did from afar and know that one day we will see them just as they are. So church, as we close out Genesis 21, we should leave here being thankful that God's word is good, that it comes true always. And it always comes true in his perfect timing. I know for many of you, you're like, let let God bring his new heavens and new earth now. And if he does, we'll rejoice in that. But if it doesn't come till later, we trust in that too. We also see that there's the grandness of God's thought, right? When, When God is doing something in the moment, even if we don't fully understand it, we can trust that he's using it for something far greater, even than just ourselves. And then lastly, we wait for that glory to come. We wait for the full realization of everything of which we've been talking about.
What a God we have, church. A God who reminds us of his goodness over and over again. So let's hold fast to them. Let's hold fast to his goodness. It will never let you down. I can assure you of that. Let's end there. Let me pray for us, and then we'll respond in song. Well, Father, as we end our time in your word, I'm I'm so thankful that we have a gospel, good news, that not only makes a difference now, but also makes a difference in the future. Because you are the God that is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so may we believe that maybe just a little bit more this Sunday. Maybe trust you a little bit more this Sunday. And Lord, as we continue to look through this wonderful book that you've given, given us, that we would, we would delight in your word because of who it reflects. And that's you. And so, Lord, we pray all these things according to your mighty and wonderful name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.